Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. This time, uh, children are dismissed for our our kids in training program. The rest of us, let us find our Bibles and we're going to continue on now in our series on the Gospel of Mark. Today's scripture text is going to be Mark chapter 3 verses 1 to 12. As you find that, I'll just, just give you a little heads up here. The most of the sermon is going to be from the first paragraph, Mark 3, 1 to 6. We'll read all the way to 12, but the emphasis will be on this first encounter with the man with the withered hand. When we find that, let's stand together as the believing body of Christ. We stand not to, uh, not to draw attention to ourselves or any such thing, but because God's word is holy, it is infallible, it is inerrant, God's word is the authority over our lives and we we receive it as such, the very word of God. Mark chapter three, verses one to 12. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, verse 9, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Father, bless us as we now think more deeply on on your holy word. Help me as the preacher to be faithful and true to what what you've given us in your perfect word. And bless these people, your church, that they may hear, understand, and that together we may obey. And we pray all these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, hey, if you're new, welcome to Gospel Fellowship. We're a Presbyterian church. It's not gonna take you very long to figure out that we Presbyterians are a little bit weird from time to time. 
Go ahead if you want, look around. Look around at some of the folks near you. They probably look a little bit strange. Maybe they look normal on the outside, but we Presbyterians, once you, once you get to know us a little bit, you're gonna find out that we're a little bit unusual. Now, we're a lot like most evangelicals. We believe God's word. Uh, we want to preach Christ, but there are a few things about us, Presbyterians, that you're gonna find out are just a little bit strange, and that's okay. We're all, we're all a little bit weird here. The weirdest one of us is up here preaching before the microphone this morning, so that's okay. But I'm just gonna tell you a, little, a few things that are strange about us Presbyterians. First of all, if you're new, our, our worship services might seem a little bit different from some of the services maybe you're used to if you've been to a different church before, and the worship service kind of looks a little bit more like a rock concert with a TED Talk attacked onto the back of it. Our worship services are gonna seem a little bit more ancient. They're gonna seem a little bit older. Some of the songs we sing are very old. Sometimes we even sing the Psalter. So even just our worship services are gonna be a little bit different and that's okay. That's all right. We're strange. We're cool with that. Um, We baptize our babies here as Presbyterians. You might not be used to that. Maybe you went to a church where Babies were dedicated up front, and we actually go the full way, and we baptize them. That's one of the things that we believe, and, and we're convinced on that matter from Scripture. And, and when we talk about salvation, if you're used to other churches maybe, when, when people talk about being saved, very often they'll talk about the moment that they came forward, maybe at an altar call, at a service. And, and we believe that God really does give people new life and that we ought to be born again, as Jesus said. And yet when we Presbyterians talk about eternal life, Uh, We do something a little bit different. We go back, all the way back before the foundation of the world and we talk in terms of God's electing grace and his predestining favor set upon us. We use Bible words like election and predestination and if if that's weird, I I apologize, but I'm just letting you know that we're a little bit strange and that's okay and we're all right with that. And I'll give you one more. We Presbyterians are one of the last Christian groups today that are still talking about this idea of the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. Uh, We talked about this beginning last week with the first part in this sermon series, and while many evangelicals, and we love them, and we we truly pray for our brothers and sisters, and my point, by the way, is, is not to knock anybody else down. I'm just sharing a little bit about our hearts, who we are. One of the things that's unusual about us is we're one of the last Christian denominations still focusing on this idea of Sabbath or Lord's Day. So let me do a little bit of review from last week if you missed part one, and then we're gonna dive right back into the next paragraph in our Bibles, and we're gonna continue to work on this concept called the Sabbath. Now, I mentioned three things last week that are really foundational. I'm assuming you got those, because they're in your notes in the bulletin if you need it, but I'm building upon that. So the first thing we said last week was that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. It's something that was built into the very fabric of the universe. And so we're going to be our best. We're going to be at our most healthy. We're going to be most in tune with God and his world when we're living according to the pattern that he set up, which is a six day of work and one day of rest and worship kind of a routine. All right, the second thing I mentioned last week is that the Sabbath is still part, always was, back, all the way back to the Ten Commandments, but is still part of God's moral law. So it is one of the Ten Commandments that we obey the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. And so it does, there is an ethical component to this as well. And then finally, I mentioned last week, and we're gonna build a little bit upon this this week, that the Sabbath is a gift of God for our holy rest. And so whatever else, if the Sabbath is, 
whatever else it may be, and we can disagree on it with other Christians, that's fine, but it is certainly a gift of God's grace so that we might rest and trust and grow in him. And having done that by way of review, we're gonna move on now to, to three more aspects of the Sabbath or the Lord's Day that we find in this next paragraph that we just read this morning. So with Bibles open and hearts ready, uh, let's look at um, the next main point, which is that this, and this will be the fourth point in the series, that Sabbath day is for serving and loving others. That's why God gave it to us. It is for serving and loving others. Let's look at Mark 3, verses one to four. And so it says this, he entered the synagogue and there was a man who was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether, they would he, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. You see the trap here? They're setting up a trap for Jesus. What is he gonna do? Is he gonna break the law? Is he gonna act in accordance with the law? How is Jesus going to respond to the situation? Verse three, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here, and so Jesus calls him up. It'd be as if I picked out one of you from the congregation this morning and asked you to come up and stand before us. That's what Jesus does. He draws him up to the front of the room or the center of the, of the group, however that was laid out, and he said to him, verse four, and here's a rhetorical question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Now, you know what a rhetorical question is, right? A rhetorical question is when you ask something for the sake of making a point, but it should be clear that everybody actually already knows the answer. And the rhetorical question is really clear here. Is it lawful to do good or to do bad, to save life or to kill on the Sabbath? Obviously, the answer is to do good and to save. But they couldn't answer the question, why not? They couldn't answer the question, they were silent and there's a spiritual hardening that's happening here in the hearts of the Pharisees that we ought to be warned about. Uh, Pastor David gave a wonderful message on this in the Sunday school lesson on Hebrews about hardening our hearts. We have to be careful that we don't do the same thing that the Pharisees did by hardening our hearts here. Now the Pharisees, they had a whole theology of the, of the Sabbath, okay? They were, they were the most strict, and legalistic group of their day, so they absolutely held to a strong theology of the Sabbath. The problem is, if I could put it as simply as I can, is that the Pharisees had a don't theology of the Sabbath rather than a do theology of the Sabbath. So the Pharisees were always talking about, always emphasizing, always hammering down on what you could not do on the Sabbath. For instance, they had a regulation that you could walk 1,999 steps without violating the Sabbath, but if you took that 2,000th step, that was too far. Now, wherever they got that number and however they tracked their steps, today we have pedometers on our wrist and you can track your steps on your phone. I have no idea how they tracked their steps back in those days, but that was it. Don't go over 1,999 steps or you violated the Sabbath. Now, I know I'm reducing this here, making this a little bit more simple, but Jesus' theology of the Sabbath has far more do than I think the Pharisees permitted in their understanding of the Sabbath, which is why Jesus is talking here about doing good to others. Let's flip over, if we can, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. I wanna show you a parallel passage to the one we're studying this morning. It's a parallel passage, Luke chapter 14. 
at the beginning of the chapter. It says, one Sabbath, this is gonna sound very familiar because we just read Mark 3, one to six. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, here's the same question again, same rhetorical question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and healed him and sent him away. Now, everything sounds very familiar so far. It's very parallel to Mark 3. But then we have this additional thing that Jesus says in verse 5. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. And so Jesus is clearly making room for the doing of certain kinds of things. Namely, if you had a son that fell in a hole, or if you have an ox, or uh, one translation says a donkey, if it falls into a well on the Sabbath day, of course, of course, what kind of a person? How hard of a heart would you have to have to not rescue that person in that moment? Of course you would do that. And so Jesus here is, is, is bringing up the idea that, that we Presbyterians have come to call works of mercy and necessity on the Lord's day. We can do works if there are works of mercy and necessity, we are free. Listen, you are free to do good for the glory of Jesus on the Lord's day. You're free to do that. Some people have, have, uh, have, have concerns about, you know, they don't, wanna, they don't wanna violate the Sabbath, and I, under, I understand that. Some people have concerns about what work is permissible on the Lord's day and what work shouldn't, shouldn't be, and, but I, but, but I think the scripture clearly makes room here for some kind of work, the work that we call works of mercy and necessity. For instance, we have to have police officers even on the Lord's Day, don't we? Gotta have police officers. You gotta have a fire department that's operable even on Sundays. You have to have somebody that can come and rescue you if, you're, if your car slides off the road. We have to have salt trucks that operate even on Sundays. We have to have tow trucks that are available even on Sundays. A doctors, nurses, surgeons, physicians, yes, these kinds of works. We would put into the category of works of mercy and necessity, and you, believer, you are absolutely free to do good for the glory of Jesus and for the help and the concern of others in your family, church, or community on the Lord's day. You're free to do good. But here's what we wanna be careful of, and this is where I will personally draw, draw a line. We have to be very careful that the Sabbath day or the Lord's day doesn't become my day, right? can't become my day, why not? Because the Lord said in the end of chapter two, look at the last verse of chapter two, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now sometimes if you put your ear to the ground and you talk to folks about the Lord's day, you'll hear them saying things, and I know they don't mean it like this, but they'll say things like that, like uh, it's my only day to sleep in. What's, what's the implication there? It's, it's my it's, it's my only day to sleep in, or it's our only day to go boating. It's our only day to get our tea times at noon. The implication there is somehow the day belongs to us, but that's exactly where Jesus disagrees. The day belongs to the Lord. So you are free to love, you are free to serve, you are free to evangelize, you are free to visit, you are free to call people that need to hear your voice today, you are free to do good, you are free to do works of mercy and necessity, but let's not be confused, the day belongs to, to who? 
to the Lord. Okay. So you're free to do good and to serve others on the Sabbath. Now, point five. The Sabbath day is a day of renewal and transformation. Okay. So if point four was about serving others, point five is going to sound really good because I don't know about you, but, but I find myself in need of renewal and transformation from time to time, don't you? Okay, so let's look at the text again. Let's go back, Mark chapter three, let's pick up at verse five. And he looked around at them with anger. Why was he angry, by the way? Was angry because he was grieved at their hardness of heart. It wasn't that he was mad at them as, as people, like he wasn't despising them in his heart, but he was grieved at their hardness of hearts. And so he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And so you have to, you have to kind of picture here this, this poor guy with the withered hand, right? I mean, how many of you like being called forward in a moment like this? Would you, would you appreciate that? Probably not. Most of us, we don't really like being the center of attention. Most of us don't like being made an, an illustration of. We certainly don't want to be an object lesson between Jesus and the Pharisees' argument. I have to admit here that this is probably a little bit of an embarrassing moment for the man with the withered hand, especially as he's called up to the center. And then look, Jesus calls him up in verse three, but he's got this whole argument here that takes place in verse four. And Jesus is angry. He's growing angry in verse five. It's not until the end of verse five that Jesus actually begins to do the work of healing here. So I have to imagine this was a little bit awkward for the guy with the withered hand, right? Quick story, my, my grandfather's grandfather, his name was Harmon Everhard. He had a, a sawmill accident. He was a farmer. And one day out in the barn with a sawmill, he cut off a three of the fingers on his right hand. And he went into shock, and so he picked up his three fingers, put them in the pocket of his apron, and went right back to work. Now what's interesting about this is uh, there's only a few pictures of Harmon Everhard that we still have. There's maybe three or four pictures that we have of him. But in every picture from then on, he is constantly hiding the hand that was injured, right? A couple times he's doing this, a couple times it's behind somebody, a couple times it's like under his arm, but for the rest of his life, I have to imagine, based on those pictures, that photographic evidence, he was constantly hiding that wounded hand. And so for Jesus, not only to call this man forward, but what does he say to the man when he calls him forward? Look down at your Bible. What does he tell him to do? Stretch out your hand. Let's have a look at this hand here. I want to see it. Let, let, let everybody see it. Stretch out this hand. Why does he do this? There's a, there's a deeper principle happening here. That is, while the man with the withered hand must put out his hand for the receiving of, of the healing, there's a stark irony here with what the Pharisees are doing with their hearts right? He has to put out his hand, but the Pharisees are what? They're hiding their hearts from Jesus' healing. And so the, the deeper principle here is, is simply this. If we want Christ to work 
a work of grace and renewal and transformation in our lives, we have to first of all acknowledge and admit what it is that we want him to heal. That's why repentance always precedes the receiving of forgiveness. What is repentance other than the acknowledging of our brokenness, the acknowledging of our sin, the admitting of what has been, what has been damaged in us, what we've done to ourselves? And so if we want to receive forgiveness, what we have to do is, first of all, acknowledge it and repent of it. We have to hold it forth to Jesus. We have to put it out here and say, Jesus, this is what is broken in me. This is what is mangled in my life. This is what is withered in my spirit, and I need you. Only you can heal me. You have to put it out for him to heal it for you. And so I would simply say it this way. If you are a guilty sinner in God's sight today, the only way to receive forgiveness is to acknowledge that before him and to ask him for his grace and for his renewal. If you find that your conscience is mangled because of what you've done in the past, you have to put it out for Jesus. You have to expose it to Jesus' healing grace and his power, and he certainly has the power, and he has the desire to heal you from whatever your soul needs to be healed of. If your marriage is in a rough place this morning, and, and, and maybe, maybe there's a few of us here whose marriages are in a, are a rough place, you have to first of all call out to him and ask for him to heal it. Right? There's, it's no use hiding it. It's no use concealing it. It's no use pretending that the problem isn't there. Put it out there for him to heal. Acknowledge it. Admit it. Ask him. And don't be like the Pharisees who were cloaking up themselves, hiding their hearts from Jesus. If you struggle with fear, if you struggle with anxiety, some of us struggle with anxiety, if we struggle with bitterness, if we struggle with resentment, if there's somebody that we cannot forgive because our hearts are hardened, if we're angry people, we expose it to Jesus, we hold it out to him, and we let him be the divine physician which will give you grace. And I simply, I would simply observe that it seems from the pattern in scripture that Jesus loves to heal on the Lord's day, doesn't he? Loves to heal on the Lord's day. There's something, he heals on other days. But to Jesus, healing on the Lord's day was a special thing. And so I, I believe that, that when we gather together as God's people, when we gather together as the church, he loves and he delights in healing us from our heart wounds, our soul wounds, and our spirit grievances when we come to him and acknowledge that we need his help. Sometimes Jesus heals dramatically in the very moment. Sometimes Jesus' healings are instantaneous. Salvation is instantaneous. When Christ heals you, justification by faith happens in the moment, right? Adoption as his children happens instantaneously. It happens in the very moment that God causes us to be born again and regenerated in our hearts. But sanctification is a much slower process. In sanctification, we're made more and more under the image of Christ slowly over a period of many weeks and months and years. And that's why we don't just gather together once on the Lord's Day, but we gather together week after week after week because every week, what do we do other than we come together we acknowledge our sins. That's why we have a prayer of confession at the beginning of the service. We hear the word of God with its healing and instructive power and we gather together regularly at the Lord's table to be nourished and edified by the sacrament. 
And so some healings are dramatic and instantaneous. I'm praying that God would, would, would use this church to convert people from sinners into believers, but we're also trusting that Christ is doing a work of sanctification, slower healing in our lives as we continue to gather together as the people of God, week in and week out, on his day, the Lord's day. Now, this third point I wanna make um, has to do with the day itself. And maybe you've already been asking this question as we've been going through this little two-part series is, is this, why do Christians worship on Sunday, whereas it would seem from the Old Testament that the Jews worshiped on the Sabbath, which would have been Friday night to Saturday night, sundown Friday night uh, to sundown Saturday. Well, let's, let's address this a little bit, and I can't fully explain this just from our passage here this morning, but I do think that there's a hint. So let's look at verse six. What accounts for the shift in the day? Well, look what happens here at the end of our passage. This is Mark chapter three, verse six. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So you notice here, it seems obvious that the antagonism or the animosity between Jesus and the Pharisees is being cranked up in these Sabbath day controversies, okay? Now there's several of them throughout the Gospels. We've already read a couple of them. Uh, Mark one has a Sabbath controversy, so does Mark two. This is a series of controversies between Jesus and the Pharisees, all related to the Sabbath day and its observation. But notice what happens in verse six. The Pharisees would seem to be cranking up their resentment against Jesus. You see that? Because what do they do here at the, verse, at the end of verse six? They're, they go out, and they immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now these Pharisees, the same Pharisees, who were so against taking more than 1,999 steps, have no problem calling together a meeting on this very day, right, with, with the Herodians, no less, to do, for what, to do what, to accomplish what purpose? To destroy him. Okay, so, so why did the day shift? Why did the day shift from a Saturday Sabbath to a first day, Lord's Day observation? I wanna suggest three things that happened in the early church that might account for this change in days. And the first one is simply this. There was an increase of tension and animosity in the synagogues between those who would acknowledge Christ as the Savior and those who would not. Does that make sense? So you have this dynamic happening in the first century AD is that Christian Jews are beginning to preach the gospel in the Jewish synagogues. Now that's kind of controversial in and of itself, right? You got some rabbis like the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts and he comes to the synagogue. In fact, everywhere Paul goes, that's his pattern in the book of Acts, is as a rabbi, he would be invited to read the scriptures and then he would preach. But what would Paul preach when he went to the synagogues? What did he preach? Preach the gospel of Christ, yeah? And you can imagine that that created a little bit of tension in the synagogues between those people who would receive Christ as the Messiah and those who refused Christ as the Messiah as the Pharisees apparently are doing in this passage. So what happens over time 
is that this controversy continues to heat up and build up so that these Sabbath day synagogue preaching events would become controversial, building over into hostility and even, you ready for this? Violence. Yeah. That's why when you read the book of Acts, here, I'll give you a, I'll give you a homework assignment. You ready? Just scan through the book of Acts and look at all of the times that Paul preaches the gospel in the synagogues. Do a word search for synagogue, book of Acts, and look at what happens every time Paul preaches Jesus in the synagogues. You got controversy, even violence. Look at this. Let's go over to Acts chapter 17. I think we have time to do this this morning. Acts chapter 17. Let's read of one of these such encounters of gospel preaching in the Jewish synagogue. Now, when they had passed over through Amphipolis in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. There you go, Acts 17.1. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So you see the pattern here? Paul does this regularly. Goes to the synagogue, reads the scriptures, preaches Jesus. Now verse four, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. You can see a fracture about to happen here. As did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were, were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So how long can this pattern go on before you're gonna have a serious tension and rift between the Messiah proclaiming Jews and the Messiah rejecting Jewish people? It's gonna be a problem, right? See that? It's gonna be a problem. That's one of the reasons that accounts for the shift in the day. Okay, simply for peacemaking purposes. Now there's a theological reason also. The theological rationale, if that's a practical rationale, the theological rationale has to do with one of the greatest events in all of redemption history that happened on the first day of the week. What is that? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, exactly. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was on the first day day of the week, and so when we read our Gospels, we see something very interesting in the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, okay, there's a number of them. Now, some of them don't tell us at all what day Jesus met with his disciples, but here's the thing. Every time Jesus appears and the day is mentioned, guess what day it is? First day of the week, exactly right. And so it's almost as though Jesus is setting up this pattern that is gonna continue that when he meets with his people, he will meet with them on the first day. Or we might think of it as the eighth day, the day of the new creation. If day one of creation was God sending light into the darkness, remember the creation event? Let there be light. So also the resurrection is this monumental, epochal moment in the history of redemption. If there was anything that could shift the day, it would be the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so it would seem that there's this pattern of meeting with Christ on his day, so that um, when we actually look at some of the later parts of the New Testament, here's what we see. We see this pattern of first day meetings taking place throughout the rest of the New Testament. Let me give you a couple examples. Just write these down. 
Uh, you don't have time to, to turn to them right away. Uh, but Acts chapter 20, verse seven is one. Acts 27, you can write that down, look it up later. 1 Corinthians 16, two is another. Let me read one of them to you. It says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day and he proclaimed a speech there until midnight. That's a preacher's favorite passage because you remember that one, that's the one where the pre- Paul preaches so long that the guy falls asleep and falls out the window, remember that? Justification for long sermons, my favorite passage in the New Testament. Here's another one, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul is telling the, the Corinthian Christians, whenever you gather together, and he says it's gonna be on the first day, he's assuming that they meet on the first day, then save up your tithes and your offerings because we're gonna disperse that to the poor in Jerusalem later. But the idea there that's important is that Paul is expecting the Corinthians to continue this pattern of first day worship meetings, right? Now I'll admit, I'll be the first one to admit, um, I've got no dog in the fight, I'll be the first one to admit that there is no command in the New Testament that commands the day to be changed from the Friday night to Saturday night Sabbath to the first day of the week, Lord's Day. It just seems to be the pattern that happened almost like the tectonic plates just shifting below the surface. But however it happened, however long it took to take place, and for whatever reasons the early Christians had, what is apparent when we look at Christian history is that by the time Justin Martyr is writing in 138 AD, it seems to be the pattern universally across the board that that's what all the Christian services were doing is meeting on the first day, the Christian Lord's Day. So for instance, listen to this. This is Justin Martyr writing 138 AD in his book, The First Apology. He says, this quote, direct quote, we all choose Sunday for our communal gatherings because it is the first day on which God created the universe by transforming darkness in primal matter and because Jesus Christ, our healing savior, rose from the dead on the same day. For they crucified him on the day before the day of Saturn. That would be a Friday, right? The day before the day of Saturn. On the day after the day of Saturn, that is on the Sunday, he appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them these things which we have put before you for your consideration. So by the time Justin Martyr is writing, he's assuming that all Christians everywhere are pretty much meeting on the first day of the week. And he gives two theological rationales One has to do with creation, this light into darkness thing, and second of all, because of Christ's resurrection, his meeting with his apostles on the first day of the week. So that's what accounts for the first day change. Um, Now, I wanna wanna finish up here, because we'll be finishing up this two-part series here. These are the last moments of the two-part series with just a little bit of a prescription for you, if if I can be so audacious to suggest. So what, what do you, Bible-believing Christian, what should you do on Sundays? Well, all I can, all I can speak from is my own experience, which I, I think is a healthy pattern that I've set up for myself. For me, the Lord's Day actually begins last night because if I'm going to rest on this day, then I should take that idea of rest somewhat literally. I go to bed early on Saturday nights. 
uh, I find myself needing to get rested up. And if I'm gonna get myself and my family ready on Sunday mornings, and I need a little bit extra rest, so I'm inclined to go to bed a little bit early. I'm gonna pray for my church. I'm gonna pray for my people. I'm gonna pray for you all. I'm gonna pray for the sermon, whether it's me preaching or David or somebody else preaching. I'm gonna go to bed early. I'm gonna pray for the service. And then, on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, I get up at 6.30, which for me, check this out, is sleeping in an hour. How do you like that? Because I get up 5.20, every day of the week for the most, most of the day. So, so to me, 6.30, that's a bonus hour. I'm already up two hours on my regular routine just by going to bed early and sleeping in one hour late. I'm taking this rest thing seriously, okay? Then I've got an hour for devotion and prayer, get my family up. Uh, we come to Sunday school every week, and for me, that's not just because I'm the pastor, but because I believe in the priority of Christian education. Here's a small little sermonette. Parents, your children are going to be bombarded with the teaching of the world. They're going to get it every angle, all week long. They're going to get it in school. They're going to get it from their friends. They're going to get it from YouTube. They're going to get it from the tablets that you let them have free access to all week long, right? They're going to be bombarded with the beliefs, theology, and morals of the world. And so I need to fight that with everything I have. And one of the best resources I have available is our Christian education program on Sunday mornings. Why wouldn't I take advantage of that for my children? Okay. Then we gather together for worship. When we come home, uh, my family's habit is we go over what we learned in Sunday school. We go over the sermon, ask everybody in the family what you did, what you learn, who taught, what was the lesson, what Bible passage. We go over the sermon. My kids tell me what I did wrong and what I said wrong. <laughs> Just kidding. And then what do we do again? We rest. It's a day of rest. Take a nap, relax, chill for an hour. Now I'm up three hours of rest on the average day. And my favorite days are the days that we get to go back to church in the evening, which, by the way, we get to come back tonight to sing praise and read scripture and sing hymns tonight. So I love it. I love it. And if I don't have anything in the evening, I'm gonna make some phone calls, maybe write some cards, maybe visit the shut-ins, do some works of mercy and necessity. And I'll tell you what, just speaking for myself, I feel so refreshed by the time Sunday night comes and Monday morning is on me again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we love you. Lord, we admit our many weaknesses and we thank you though that you give us this beautiful day to be together. I love being with your people. I love you, Father. I love your people. Thank you, Father, for this time to, to gather, to pray, to study, to sing. And now, Father, hear our voices as we rise together to our feet and sing our last hymn, Lift Up Your Heads, Ye Mighty Gates. We're gonna sing verses one and four. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.